So what is your method for remembering stuff? Are you a tie a ribbon or string around your finger kind of person? Do you do it old school, at least how we used to do it when I was a kid, and you write on your hands? Do you do that? Or is technology so advanced for you that you've realized that your phone actually has reminders on it that you can set and it actually works? See, I don't use any of that stuff. I do it the old school way. And that might make me more prone to forget stuff. Have you ever had a moment where you forgot something super important, right? Like I remember when Rachel and I lived in Chicago, I was going to grad school and my parents and my sisters were coming out to visit us. And my one sister, she lives in Virginia. Uh, my other sister lives, at the time, lived near Harrisburg. And so they were going to fly out of Harrisburg to Chicago. Uh, and when they went to go through the screening, my sister who lives in Virginia had forgotten her ID, right? That's a major forget, isn't it? And it was, oh, by the way, 2003, right on the heels of 9-11 and the airport security that was happening. And so uh, I'm not sure how she made it happen. I'm just glad that she had to deal with my dad and not me in that particular moment. Right? Have you ever had a, something like that happen to you where you forgot something of significance? Well, the psalmist this morning wants to remind us that as humans, that's our tendency. We are forgetful people. And of particular note for him is that we actually forget what God is like. And so we need to be practical and pragmatic about reminding ourselves. This morning we want to remember that the Lord is compassionate. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Psalm 103. Uh, if not, fear not, because uh, the words will be on the screens behind me. Uh, this is another psalm written by David. This is what David writes. He says, Praise the Lord my soul. All my inmost being, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not. There it is, right? Forget not all of His benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? He redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and with compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Like a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over and it's, it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear 
Him. His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His Word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, you His servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His works everywhere in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is incredibly human, is he not? David is human just like us. He forgets. And so he's stopping to speak deeply to his soul, right? We need to think about this. He's not just talking out loud. He's actually talking uh, to himself deep within. I imagine he probably is talking out loud, right? It's biblical to talk to yourself. You should feel good about that. Uh, but he's talking deep to his soul. He's, he's speaking to the inner depths of who he is. He's stopping, as we've talked all throughout this, this series in the Psalms, that he's preaching the Gospel to himself with regularity because he forgets, just like us. And so before we get into any conversation about what it means that God is compassionate or what this psalm kind of is, is filled with, we need to take and heed the model of the psalmist David. And we need to create regular rhythms in our life that allow us to be re-centered on the truth of who God is and what God has and is doing. That's why we have Sunday morning gatherings, by the way. We're not doing this because uh, God says if you don't do this, you're in big trouble, right? We do this because we have to. We forget. We live in the world and the world speaks to us and we're worn down and it's weary and it's tiring. There's highs and there's lows and, and our human minds tend to go all over the place and our hearts and our souls go all over the place. We gather as a community on Sunday mornings, not to go through some uh, rituals or ceremonies, but because we forget and we need to remember and be recentered who God is and what He's done and that we ought to order our lives around that. I'll be honest with you, one of the things I've begun over the last couple of weeks praying is that as a church community, we would see the value in being here every single week. Not because we keep attendance. Not because you've got to uh, prove to God that you're worthy of any of His great gifts He gives you. But because you're human. And together, like we need each other. You don't just need me to preach. We need each other to remind us and recenter us on the truth of who God is and what He's doing. Would you make Sundays a priority for that particular reason? It's significant. But likewise, it's the reason that uh, in our equipping gatherings and our community groups over the past year, we've been really focusing in on trying to develop personal habits that create space to be with God, right? We call them rhythms of life. Uh, and people have different words for that, and that's fine. But the idea is if we're not intentional about creating space, then we're going to go the normal human route of distance, and forgetfulness. But if we create space, then we have the moments to speak truth deep within ourselves. Honestly, if you have like five minutes of attention span and 
that's it for you, like you've heard a good word this morning and I'd be happy to wrap the sermon. Uh, I'm not going to, but I'd be happy to wrap the sermon at that moment. You can take that truth and run with it. So David's heart is forgetful, but what does he want his heart to know? Uh, And I would say to you, he wants his heart to know that the Lord is compassionate. That's what this whole psalm is about. Now, how do we understand his compassion? Well, David breaks it into two big categories. The first is what God has done, right? What God has done. And the second is who God actually is. Now, that might be reversed to us. Like, why don't we start with who he is and then what he's done? But we really discover who he is in large part because we've experienced what he's done. So David starts with the evidence before he draws a conclusion. And I need to remind you that in this beginning part of the psalm, David is still speaking to his soul. This is a one-on-one conversation in its purest sense, right? Person to himself or person to herself. And so all the things that David is saying here are not just things that God did somewhere else. They're things that God has done for him. And I would suggest to you that anyone who has uh, believed the gospel and has been centered on Jesus, that these things are also true for you. So what is it that God has done? David suggests there are five big things here. And really, I think that they kind of start on the surface and they go deep, deep, deep within. And they build on top of each other. Maybe you picked up on them as we read earlier. The first thing that David says is, you forgive all my sins. You hear that? You forgive all my sins. This word forgive, it means like pardon, like getting rid of them. But if you actually look at the word in its, in its original meaning and its usage, it actually means like to act indulgently towards, right? It's the person who when you go over to their house gives you five scoops of ice cream instead of one. You know what I'm saying? Like it's indulgence. Like you're, you're digging in. I'm not asking for that when I come over to your house, by the way. It's pure illustration here, right? It's indulgence, right? There's a commercial on TV now for, I think it might be Little Caesars. I don't know. It's pizza, and I love pizza, so it all runs together. They're claiming that they're putting uh, over 100 pieces of pepperoni on one pizza, right? Indulgence, right? This is the idea of how God acts towards us, like more than we even need in those moments in moving to forgive our sins. And then you hear the language he used towards the end of the psalm. This is what he does with our sins. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us. Now purposely, the psalmist is using indistinguishable points to make the point of infinity, right? You can go to the east as far as the east is and to the west as far as the West is, the idea is that God hasn't just taken your sin off of you and set it to the side of you so it's right there staring at you so that you're remembering it all the time. It's that He's taken it completely out of the picture. You know, for many of us, our struggle with sin is rooted in the fact that we don't believe that that's actually true. That we believe, okay, God forgives it, but it's still front and center for Him. And He views us through our sin. And the Gospel tells us that is actually far from the truth. That's not who God is. And likewise, 
we tend to be people who when dealing with our sin, perhaps embrace the forgiveness of God, but we do not remove it from us as far as the East is from the West. We let it sit in the next, uh, next room or right next to us. And we define ourselves by it and or are tempted by it. What we're saying here is that the compassion of God is fully embraced when we join Him in removing our sin from us as far as the East is from the West. This is a lavish God who pours forgiveness out on us. But as the psalmist wants to say throughout this psalm, these things are experienced in perfect ratio to your openness to them. Does this make sense? In other words, he's constantly saying like, uh, for those who fear God, for those who obey His precepts, for those who follow Him. This idea of forgiveness, it's not contingent. This is who God is. This is what He does. But your experience of it will be equal to your embrace of it. Does that make sense? So if you believe in a God who, okay, He forgives you, but He sets your sins right next to you, then that's going to be your experience of forgiveness. See this? And that's how you'll define God. And David has not experienced that. And you might be saying, well, gosh, my list of sins are profound, even my recent ones. And many of you know the story of David's life, right? My guess is in this room, few of you, perhaps none of you, have committed murder, right? David's a murderer. And he's many, many other profoundly heinous things. But he understands the compassion of God through his forgiveness. Then he goes a little bit of a layer deeper. The second phrase he says is that he heals all our diseases. Now this is interesting language, isn't it? Uh, So we need to make sense of this. We believe, and Christians, all Christians should believe, that God in fact does heal physical illnesses. He is in the business of healing things. But we need to nuance this, right? Because there are many Christians who take that uh, to extremes that aren't biblical. The idea that God heals us uh, is provided for in His atoning work on the cross. right? In, in Isaiah 53, it says that by His stripes, by His wounds, we are healed. That's that language of healing diseases. And He talks about afflictions and diseases. And, and then you remember the miracle that Jesus performs where He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And it says right in the Gospel there, this was done to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. So there's fulfillment of that idea of healing diseases. But this is not like a a name it and claim it kind of reality, right? This isn't the idea that, okay, I'm sick. Well, I just ask God and He takes it away. This is something about submitting ourselves to the will of God and being willing to embrace uh, His will that provides Him the most glory that sometimes moves to provide healing and other times for reasons we don't understand does not. So I've given you some theology on sickness and healing. Now I want to tell you, that has nothing to do with this verse at all. (laughs) Because that's not what this is about. You say, well, it says heal all the diseases. Well, it's an interesting word for diseases here. And it's only used in the Old Testament of times when God, mm, let's use old King James language, smites the people, right? So this is a time like when God gets angry at the people. Like Remember in the wilderness, they're like horrible, horrible people. And then like, snakes come and start biting them and they get sick and all of these things. 
that language for disease is connected to that idea. So you see, it's directly connected to the phrase we talked about, about forgiving sins. Is that God doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He does the restorative work in our souls and in our bodies to restore the effects of sin. This is really what this language is about. Does it make sense? That God is restoring the effects of sin in us and in our world. Now listen, as it is throughout the whole psalm, your experience of this is directly equal to your embrace of it. If you're all in and letting God do the restorative work in you, you will see restoration. If you're arm's length at a distance, I've got this, pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to fix this scenario, you're not going to experience the restorative, compassionate power of God. Does it make sense? Because God is a God who doesn't just want to remove sin from us. Ultimately, His, his, his goal, His ambition, what will eventually be fully accomplished is the restoration of all things. Don't you see this? And God is already at work doing that. It's part of what it means to be forgiven. That even things that get broken because of our sin, God is in the business of restoring if we submit ourselves to His process. So, forgives all our sins. He heals our diseases. And it says He redeems us from the pit. Right? This is a great psalm language. The word pit shows up in the psalms like a million times. Uh, and the word pit really is this idea of like, slimy mud that you get stuck in. Or if you grew up watching the cartoons and shows I did, like quicksand, right? That's the, that's the image that comes to my mind. I still don't know if quicksand's really a thing or not, but you know what the idea is when I say quicksand, right? You're in it and you're stuck and you're slowly sinking and you can't get out unless uh, the, the rescuer shows up in time. Perhaps Lassie or someone like that, right? <laughs> who, who we used to watch. And God, as it turns out, is the ultimate rescuer from the quicksand. This is what he's saying. Now, this word redeem is a fascinating word in the original language. Uh, We really don't have one-to-one correspondence to our modern English language. Because in in the Old Old Testament, the covenant that God made with his people, uh, the reality of of how they lived, uh, this word redeem had to do with uh, relatives uh, coming in and saving destitute people, right? So uh, the, probably the most famous story, and you may not be familiar with this, is the story of Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. Uh, really, Naomi and Boaz in the book of Ruth, but you, you get the idea. So Boaz is oftentimes called a kinsman redeemer, right? That's the same, same word here, redeemer. Uh, he's able to come and rescue Naomi by buying back Naomi's uh, husband who had passed away, Elimelech's field, and therefore providing for her. Because in that day, to be a woman meant to, meant to really struggle and not, be, not have the authority and, and the legal capacity to do those things. And Boaz can step in and rescue her and provide for her and allow her life to flourish again. Uh, and David's saying, hey, we saw that in Boaz, but the ultimate kinsman redeemer, don't you see, is God himself. And the situation is actually far worse than Naomi and Ruth's situation. And God comes and He rescues us. You see this? See, we're all broken and sinful people. The beauty of the compassion of God 
is not just that He forgives sins on the surface, but He actually is doing the restorative work in us, in our relationships, and in our world if we submit ourselves to Him. And in so doing, He's actually lifting us out of the quicksand that we have found ourselves in. right? And then there's two more fascinating little verses, little uh, phrases. He says, He crowns us with compassion and love. This idea of crowning has to do with uh, victory, right? Putting a, a, um, a fig garland uh, or, or, or wreath on someone's head, uh, acknowledging them as significant. But there's this idea that the, the thing that drives this rescue and restoration and forgiveness is the love and compassion of God. That's the root of all of this. And, and He places it on us to give us a whole new identity to show our value to the onlooking world. Right? So many of us, myself included, are desperate to be significant uh, or, or secure or accepted in this world. Your soul probably longs for one of those three things or a combination of them all. The psalmist says, the way you're going to find that is through this dynamic experience of God's compassion and love. And then he finishes it up by saying, and he satisfies our desires with good things. Now, this verse is particularly challenging to translate from the original language. Uh, but I don't think this translation is necessarily fair. Here's what the original language says, and then we can try to make sense of this, because this is weird stuff, right? He says, he satisfies our jewelry with goodness. Yeah, that word translated desires is actually the word for jewelry. Right? Nowhere else in the whole Bible is it translated desire. It's translated jewelry everywhere else, or ornaments that you put on things. So we have to make sense of the picture. This is a, uh, the Psalms are poetry, right? They're drawing imagery and pictures here. Why do women or men uh, wear jewelry or adorn themselves? Specifically thinking of like earrings and things like that. Ornaments. Why do you put those things on you? To look good. So that the onlooking people can look at you and see value or significance or beauty. And David is ultimately saying it's this love and compassion of God that does this. But because he uses the word satisfy before it, this is why the translators want to speak about desire. Does it make sense? Because he's saying it's not actually now the people outside who are looking on you, it's you who are looking on yourself. Does this make sense? Right? Because the crowning was kind of everyone looking on you. Now this is you looking on yourself. The word satisfy means to like be satiated. To drink till you're full or eat till you're full. Think Thanksgiving if you love that holiday, right? Like if you experience the truth of God's compassion... It's like eating the greatest Thanksgiving meal you've ever eaten. Your soul will be full. And it will adorn you like beautiful jewelry. I don't know why it's translated good things because there's no pronoun there for the idea of things. I think David is not talking about good things. I think he's talking about the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God 
that adorns you. Everything we talked about last week that God guides and guards and sees and watches and is with us and forgives us in all the splendor of His goodness, it's on us. And so when we see ourselves, that's how we see who we are. Now think with me for just a minute. I challenged us at the beginning of this to do with our sin the very thing that God does with it, right? To take it as far as the east is from the west. How on earth are you going to do that? You have to do this list in reverse order. Do you see it? You've got to first see yourself adorned with the goodness of God. That's who you are. And then you've got to see yourself victorious not on the basis of your accomplishments or your ability to beat that sin or stop doing that thing, but the love and compassion of God wins the day. Do you see it? See it? And you ultimately realize that what is happening is that you're being rescued not from sin and not from this world. What is the quicksand that we've all stepped in? We're being rescued from ourselves. Do you see this? God is pulling us out of our own grip. And in so doing, He's restoring us and in our restoration, moving sin away from us. A beautiful picture of what God does and how we can join Him in it. So David then turns in the second half of the psalm and begins talking about who God is. And now he's no longer speaking to his soul. He's had this personal experience. He's just preached the Gospel to his soul like we just did over the last 15 to 20 minutes. Now he wants to tell the world. right? He wants the world to know who God is. By the end of it, he's preaching to angels. right? And to the heavenly host. He's so blown away by who God is. And who he wants us and everyone to know who God is he takes us to a defining statement about God that is made by God Himself. Did you catch it in there? It shows up all the time in the Old Testament. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. This was first proclaimed by God in the middle of the Exodus story. Do you remember this? Moses had gone up to get the Ten Commandments. You remember that story or you've seen the movie, right? And while they're up there, he's taking a long time, right? And uh, the people get nervous or they get disinterested. They make a golden calf. A horrible moment. Moses comes down. God's angry. Moses throws the tablets down. They shatter. He goes back up on the mountain to see what he should do. God wants to be done with this people. After all He's done for them, now they're going to do this. And Moses intercedes for the people and he begs for God. And God relents and says, okay, they can go, but I'm not going with them. And Moses says, listen, we're not going anywhere unless you come with us. And then God says, okay, I'll come. But Moses isn't done. Then he says to God, show me your glory. In Exodus chapter 33, this is how it goes. It says, Moses says, now show me your glory. This is how God responds. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness, right? There's that word. To pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then Moses sets up the scene just as God has had him do. He's in a cleft of rock with his back back turned to him, and God shows up, and this is what happens in that defining moment. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And then listen to what he says. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. Anytime in the Old Testament or Semitic languages when something is doubled, it is emphasizing it. Think bold print, highlighted, everything. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalmist didn't invent this line. It comes from this profound and defining story from the people of God. This is who God is. And David knows it. See, there's a sense in which this truth about God is both character and covenant. And here's what I mean. When we say that this is God's character, we're saying that this is who God is. It doesn't change. It can't change. It's how He acts to all people. But there's a sense in which this is also covenant language. You remember that God has made a covenant with the people of Israel, right? Started with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. The covenant gets made eventually with all of Israel. And so we're talking in a covenant is an agreement to apply the character of God specifically to a group of people. Does this make sense? So when David is writing this psalm and defining who God is, he's got both of these realities in mind. The character of God and the covenant nature of God. And both are applying to the moment. So let's think through these words of this statement. When God speaks His name, if you would ask Him, okay, well, what does that mean? This is His definition of His name. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's what God's name means. That's who He is. That's His character. So what is compassion? Compassion is necessarily mercy. right? It's a merciful love given to someone who you're connected to. Uh, Or it's oftentimes spoken of love that's shared by origin or connection. Think about what you would do for someone you loved. Does it make sense? When they were in a bad spot, or when they were oppressed, or pushed against the wall, or being uh, bad things happening to them. To act on their behalf is the definition of compassion. Does it make sense? So to have compassion on someone is to see their circumstances and to act on the basis of love for it. Now listen, this is who God is character. This is how He deals with all the people. But this is also the covenant that God has made, applied specifically to His people. That He's compassionate and therefore gracious. He says then that He's slow to anger. Let's think about this in two different ways. The first way is, we talk about this a lot here at Hope, that God is patient. Right? We're talking here about the character of God. He's patient to everyone. You remember, uh, God actually confides in the people and says, 
And he made this promise to Abraham that he'd have this land, but he ultimately doesn't get it for 400 years. Why? Because he's being patient with the people who are already inhabiting the land that they might turn from the error of their ways and worship him. See, God's patience is towards everyone. We have the word slow here, which does not mean slow. It actually means long, right? Almost long like how they would measure the wings of birds. So think of the wingspan of an eagle versus the wingspan of, I don't know nothing about birds except I don't like them, uh, a hummingbird. Is that a small flapping wings, right? Or, or, you know, whatever bird has tiny wings. Like, God has eagle's wings is what he's saying. Like he's long and, and he's not going to jump to rage and to anger. He's patient. This is who he is. But this idea of being slow to anger is also deeply a covenant reality. And so how do we understand that in this psalm? We would understand that by using the word mercy or merciful. What did the psalmist say? He said God doesn't act towards us on the basis of our sin. See this? See the difference between character and covenant for a minute? We're all broken, sinful people. Character of God is to be patient. If you're in a covenant relationship with God, mercy is applied and you're not ultimately dealt with according to your sin. Does this make sense? See the, see the difference how David is making sense of this? That God doesn't treat us how our sins deserve. That's a very basic definition of mercy. That is, you don't give someone what they do deserve. Right? Grace is you give, something, something, you give someone something they don't deserve. Mercy is you withhold from someone something they, something they do deserve. You're in a covenant relationship with God. He's merciful towards us. He's slow to anger. And then it says He's abounding in love. Love defines who God is. It's His character. In fact, the psalmist says, as far as the heavens are from the earth, so great is the love of God. Think about that for a minute. Think about how much of outer space we have in 2022 explored or begun to explore. The vastness of our world that we now know that David didn't even know then when he wrote this. And yet, we have no idea where heaven is, do we? We have speculations on is it really up? Is it other dimensional? It doesn't matter. It's God's dwelling place. The idea is, again, the speaking of infinity. That God's love can't be measured it can't, the depths of it can't be fully mined. That if you devoted the rest of your life without distraction to exploring the love of God, you would not find the end of it. Think about that. That's the character of God. But it's a covenant reality because it's applied directly to those who are in covenant with Him. How? David says in the psalm, He, he knows us like a father. Right? He knows us like a father. Now listen. Some of us have had bad experiences with earthly fathers. And uh, that hasn't been my particular experience, but I'm aware of that for many. Uh, and I'm sensitive to it. And so it becomes challenging for many when God is related to a father. But what I want to ask you to do is to think about what a father ought to be. Right? And this is who God is. What the, the psalmist says, he knows how we're formed. This is the love of a father. 
a, a, a Father who knows who we are, how we're wired because He's been with us, our particular needs, uh, the things that move us and motivate us, how we're formed, not just that we exist, that God's love is applied particularly to us because He knows us that intimately. This is who God is. And that's how we experience Him if we allow Him to function in that way. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. My prayer is that you've experienced the compassion of God. That you've seen His fatherly love for you. If you haven't, I wonder if you fully embraced Him in that way. That you've seen the patience and the mercy of God. If you haven't, what would it mean to open your arms and your eyes and your heart to it this morning? That you have tasted His grace and His mercy and His goodness. But the psalm ends in a particularly interesting way. That is that, if you remember, it begins by telling us that we forget. And it ends by telling us, oh, by the way, God does not forget. Hmm? The idea of love is the Hebrew word chesed. It's a covenant word. It's the idea of faithfulness and loyalty and longevity and sticking with it. Listen to the language of the psalmist. He says, listen, the normal mortal's life kind of goes like this. It's like a flower that blows up and then strong wind comes. It's knocked away and everyone forgets it. That's what humanity is like. So many of us were striving for significance and acceptance, security, value in this world. And we get our uh, 50 seconds or whatever they say, five minutes of, of that experience. <clears throat> and then a strong gust comes and blows it away and then everyone forgets us. Incidentally, do you guys like flowers? I've learned to think that flowers are beautiful, but they've started to aggravate me now that I like them. And here's why, right? Sorry for this caveat. I just have to share it with you. Because they last like three days, right? Or a week if they're long. Like they blow up and they're beautiful and they're stunning and then you turn away and you look back and they're gone. And you think, well, maybe they'll come back next year. This is what it's like to live in this world, isn't it? You're looking for your value and your significance in this world and you'll do anything to get it and it pops up and it's gone. The psalmist says, listen, but God is with those who love Him from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. God is with you. His gaze is on you. You're not forgotten. You're significant. You're secure. You're embraced. You're accepted. The compassion of God demands it. And you say, okay, That's David's experience, but what about me? What does all this covenant language mean to me? And how do I know that God is actually still with me? And I point you, as we always do, to Jesus Himself. The Old Testament prophets longed for the day when God would make a new covenant with His people. (coughs) Excuse me. A covenant that would not be decided upon a particular law or, or agreement, 
but rather something written deeply on the hearts of the people. When Jesus shows up, you remember that ultimate moment where He's sharing the, the, the Last Supper with His closest friends. Remember He says, He pours out the wine, He says, this wine represents a what? A new covenant in My blood. See, Jesus came to bring that final, ultimate covenant so that anyone who is in Jesus, like we said earlier, is a new creation. That is, you've entered a new covenant. Don't you see it? So if you are in Jesus, you're in a covenant relationship with a compassionate God. And God is with you. Remember the story of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Matthew? When the angel is consoling and preparing Joseph for the hard news that his wife is pregnant and he's not the actual father. The Holy Spirit is. And the angel gives him instructions. So he says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Think back to the language of David. This is not just a surface level statement. It's all of those five things. Right? It goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. How do you know that God is with you? Jesus. And then ultimately Jesus, as He's preparing His disciples for the crucifixion, turns to them and says, listen, I'm going to have to go away. But this is actually good for you. Because if I go away, then I'll ask my Father and He'll send a Spirit. And the Spirit will be with you. Listen to the language in John's Gospel. He says, if you love Me, keep My commandments. Again, there's always that language. Like if you're going to have this experience of God, it's connected to you being with God. I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. you see what happens here? That in Jesus is the embodiment of God with His people, but it's contained to the physical body of Jesus. Because of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross and through His resurrection, and now enables God to once again be unleashed to the people. And the Spirit of God means that wherever you are, when you leave this place on Monday when you go to your place of business, when you go back to school in a couple of weeks, students, that God continues to be with you in a very covenant, compassionate relationship because His Spirit is with you. Don't find your identity in the things of this world. Find it in a God whose compassion not only defines Him, but is intended to define us. Can I pray with you?